0: This is Getting Lit with Linda Mora, the podcast where you can come and get lit. Canadian lit that is. Join Linda as she talks about authors in Canada and sometimes with them, using her expertise to shed light on recent and not so recent writers. And now, get set for Getting Lit with Linda. Hi, this is Linda Mora, the writer and host of Getting Lit with Linda. I'm currently speaking and recording on the traditional territory of the Kanyakahaga, a place which has long served as a site of meeting and exchange among many First Nations, including the Kanyakahaga of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, huron Wendat, Abenaki, and Anishinaabeg. I'd like to express my gratitude and respect for the Kanyakahaga as the traditional custodians of these lands and waters, especially today, because today, is Orange Shirt Day, and of course, the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. As part of it, I'm going to direct you to several websites in my show notes, including 49th Shelf, which has reprinted a list of Indigenous writers, including writers and books I'll eventually cover in this podcast, like Cheryl Demoline's The Marrow Thieves, Joshua Whitehead's Johnny Appleseed, and Billy Ray Belcourt's A History of My Brief Body. Again, I'll have links to all of this material in my show notes. This list also includes Eden Robinson's Son of a Trickster, and I'm going to pause here to say I'll be looking at Eden Robinson in today's episode. But first, a few housekeeping notes. A quick note of thanks to Mary from Elmer, Quebec, for reaching out and sending me your lovely feedback about the podcast. And also thank you to Arpita Goshal, by whose lovely write-up in Cissé magazine I was deeply honored. Thank you, Arpita. I've included a link in the show notes for that wonderful write-up. And another word of thanks to Christina from Hungary for letting me know that you're also listening to the podcast regularly. It really feels good to know that people are indeed listening. Sometimes it feels like I might be operating by myself in this little siloed closet. (laughs) Now, today, you need more than one trigger warning. Um, But I'm also going to make myself vulnerable, a little more vulnerable than usual, anyway, by speaking about a period when I suffered from depression. Depression. Now, I've added a link in my show notes for anyone who needs resources to help with this, which also includes a toll-free helpline. Anyone out there who has experienced depression will know what I'm talking about. I've had depression on more than one occasion, including and most intensely when I lost both of my parents. But today I'm going back further in time to the moment when I lost both of my grandparents over six months and had to move from one city to another city directly across the country. I didn't know anyone in this new city and I had to process the loss and the move and the isolation and the loneliness all at the same time. Now, you would think that I would have reached out to my friends at that moment, but I didn't. I'm still exasperated by the total lack of logic here. In fact, I would eventually and specifically lose one of my best friends at the time, we'll call her Sally, because I didn't even give Sally my new phone number and she believed that I had moved into this new and better life without her. Ah yes, the image of success. I couldn't explain it to her. I didn't even know how to explain why I hadn't contacted her. I've always felt terrible about it, but I was sleeping a lot, unmotivated, unfocused. The misunderstanding was so hurtful, I think for both of us. I've now been on both sides of this kind of misunderstanding and miscalculated or misjudged why people have done or said what they did. I think it's just hard to know what's really going on for others. So, it's probably best, as that recent Apple TV series character Ted Lasso is wont to say be curious, not judgmental. When I read this story by Eden Robinson, Traplines, I was reminded of that, of how much we really don't know what's teeming below the surface of people's lives, and how it's exceedingly difficult to judge when we just don't know what's actually going on. Well, I first encountered the work of Eden Robinson after I finished my doctorate in Canadian literature. It's important to note a couple of things here, that doctorates in Indigenous literature weren't even possible then. And I didn't even know that there existed a body of work outside of Canlid until I picked up Robinson's work. I'm probably dating myself by admitting this. Anyway, Canadian literature and Indigenous literatures are often conflated, and they shouldn't be. They are completely different bodies of work with different ways of reading and understanding and with different ways of approaching them. But I'm also addressing writers in Canada in this podcast, and I adore Robinson's work. So on we go. Well, Robinson rocked my world. She's a Haisla Hiltzak writer who was raised in Kitimat on the West Coast, home to about 700 members of the Haisla Nation. Monkey Beach was her first novel, and it's a stunning debut. It was followed by the Trickster Trilogy, published by Penguin Random House, and then controversially made into a film. That's a subject for another day. But what preceded the novel was her first book, a collection of four short stories, called traplines, and one of these stories, in fact titled Queen of the North, offers up the context for the events that later take place in Monkey Beach. But the story I'm focusing on today is in fact the story of the same name, simply titled Traplines. In the opening sequence of the story, the young protagonist, Will Tate, is setting up literal trap lines with his father to snare animals for their fur we immediately apprehend the different perspectives that will is juggling first he represents that of his father who tells him that winter is best for trapping because that's when animals are hungry and then he represents the point of view of mrs smythe his english teacher will later learn who seems to care very deeply about will's well-being so he observes that she would say that the trees, tall and heavy with snow, make the place look like Christmas cards, the image of happiness and contentment. There's an ostensibly calm and peaceful atmosphere to the opening of the story, but we're given the ever so slight cue that something isn't quite right when Will notices that the lines on his father's face for a moment are loose and that his father doesn't even mind when we are passed by three cars. In other words, those lines are usually not loose, they're quite tight, and he usually does mind when they're passed by three cars. This is the first time that Will also admits to us that he has a headache. He'll complain about headaches throughout the course of the story, so here's our second trigger warning related to abuse. It's our first indication in the story that things aren't what they seem, and it's heightened when we learn that it won't take long for his mom and dad to, quote, find something else to fight about, end quote. We grow to learn that he's trying to navigate carefully around his father's anger and the derogatory remarks he makes about his son, calling him a sissy, for example, when he's only nine years old because he doesn't want to slice open a squirrel. He also has an older brother, Eric, who it turns out is as much of a bully as his father, and so when Eric and his father start to fight, Will flees from the house, staying away as long as he can until he thinks they're tired of fighting. On the way back home, he observes that the houses lining the street with Christmas lights and snow also make another postcard picture, another image of happiness and contentment and it's an image that will continue to elude him. Still, it allows him to fantasize for a moment. He begins to feel hopeful. They'll get a Christmas tree, they'll have a turkey, they'll go out for a lot of parties, and his mother... Ah, yes, his mother. She'll even decorate the tree and put presents under it. Except that his mother is an alcoholic, and although she's baked bread in the first part of the story... More often than not, the kitchen is empty. He opens the fridge, for example, to find a jar of pickles, some really pathetic-looking celery, and some milk, so old that smells like cheese. Instead, Will often finds her passed out, and so he just as often ends up taking care of her. As he steps inside the house from which he fled earlier, he goes into the kitchen and takes aspirin, and... That's going to be the first of several times throughout the course of one evening that he takes them. We'll learn that they're not just for headaches after all. Oh no, they're also the result of the fact that his brother Eric and his father take turns bullying and taunting him and physically hurting him. In fact, Eric keeps trapping his brother in corners, blocking doors and exits that Will seeks out. And... When is Will most vulnerable? When he's hungry. Which is often. His stomach growls, he mentions skip meals, he's always observing what people are eating. In other words, the trap lines set out for animals at the beginning of the story operate as a kind of metaphor for the psychological, almost real and tangible trap lines in his own life. Now, Mrs. Smythe, his English teacher, seems to offer him an escape route. She's a townie, not from the village as he is, although there are no other markers of identity proffered, racial and otherwise. Well, she offers him the maternal care that he certainly craves. She always has something for him left over from her lunch. It becomes clear that she's keeping an eye out for him and trying to care for him and he explicitly makes comparisons between his current home with his parents and that of the Smythes. The Smythes have plants all over the house, with pictures all over the wall of where they've traveled, and they have reams and reams of food. In the summer, they have a sprawling green lawn with rose and raspberry bushes. What's missing from this image is the son they once had, who disappeared. There's no other explanation for this. But again, we're confronted by the postcard image with the teeming, turbulent underside to the image. At one point, there's a party for the English students at Mr. and Mrs. Smythe's place. And when it gets very late, Mr. Smythe persuades him to stay at their house for the night. The next morning, Will is rewarded with a pile of bacon and pancakes and he mentions that he thinks that Mrs. Smythe is a good cook. It's clear that, to some extent, they see him as a surrogate for the son they lost. In fact, he and Mrs. Smythe invite Will to stay with him and even reach out to his father to ask if Will might do so. Will's reaction is telling. He says that he's Not sure I heard him right. Maybe he's asking a different question from the one I think he's asking. I open my mouth, but I don't know what to say. If they seem like a good option, there are a few things to keep in mind. How likely is it that Wilt can replace the son they lost? Or what about the fact that Mr. Smythe is a fisherman? another kind of hunter in the story, or the fact that when Mr. Smythe first asks him, the first thing that Will does is to look at the only door in the room which Mr. Smythe happens to be blocking. The resonance of this image is chilling. It reminds us of that moment with his older brother Eric also blocking the door, even if what Mr. Smythe is offering may be legitimate. When Mrs. Smythe realizes that her husband has already asked Will to stay with them without her present, she's annoyed and tries to smile. Hungry? she asks Will. Of course he is. He's hungry. Physically. Emotionally. Psychologically. It's hard to know whether or not this is just another postcard image, or if this is a real offer. The story cues up to a moment when Eric is after him, pursuing him in a deeply violent and troubling way. But Will doesn't go to the Smythes for help or for safety, even though it's logical that he should. In fact, he even skips his classes. But what he doesn't count on is that Mrs. Smythe is looking for him, that she'll keep looking for him. She waits for him at the bus stop, and then when he escapes from her there, she finds him at the local hangout called, not a little ironically, The Paradise. When she attempts to approach and speak to him, he replies, Later, I'm kind of busy. His friends guffaw, and one in particular, mocks her directly. Why don't you introduce us to your girlfriend, Will? It's clear that Will feels ashamed of himself for talking to her in this way, although he can't even seem to explain to himself why he has behaved so. What he is sure of when he sees the expression on her face is that this is a side she hasn't seen of him before and that, of course, she will want nothing to do with him any longer. He can't live up to the postcard image of contentment and happiness. Of course, he thinks that she has judged him. The misunderstanding is heartbreaking and maybe she has judged him because she turns around and walks out without looking back. And he doesn't follow her. Instead, he considers hitching a ride with his buddy Billy to Vancouver for Christmas. But even then, he thinks about the Smice, their offer, their abundance of food, and of his hunger for safety, for security, for comfort, for love is the takeaway portion of the podcast. I recently had the pleasure of reading *Manikanetesh* by the Inu writer Naomi Fontaine and beautifully translated by Louise von Floteau, which had been shortlisted for the Governor General's Prize. It's about a young woman named Yami who returns to her community Wechat on Quebec's North Shore after many years absence. Fontaine is writing fiction, apparently, but it often reads like poetry, lyrically. I found it interesting that the book is marketed by the House of Anansi and elsewhere, that Yami's return is about how she transforms the community and their sense of loss and despair. Instead, however, I was fascinated by how much Yami feels compelled to return and is herself transformed by her experiences there. I have a much longer review about this extremely fine book out in the Montreal Review of Books. I have a link in my show notes. I hope you'll join me for the next episode when I'll be interviewing the magnificent Jordan Abel. That's it for today's episode. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please consider reviewing it on whatever platform you're using to listen to these episodes. Thanks for tuning in, my dear listeners. That was Getting Lit with Linda, hosted by Linda Mora. If you have a topic you would like to see covered, write to us at gettinglitwithlinda at gmail.com. Until next time, we hope you continue to get lit.